We're going to be in Mark chapter 3, so if you have a Bible or it's on your phone or there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you, you're welcome to grab that. We just read that together, so it shouldn't be totally unfamiliar to you. But as you're turning to Mark 3, let me uh, add an additional welcome to our guests who might be in the room. If you're in from the neighborhood or you've come with friends or there's all kinds of different reasons why people land in this space, we're glad you're our guest. So hear me say that first. But secondly, hear me say, we don't want you to feel like a guest for very long. Guest is nice for a couple of weeks, but we want you to feel like family. And so to that end, uh, we've got a gift for you that has information about our church. It's got one of the Mark journals, which will be helpful as we're studying this book together right now. Uh, There is uh, one of our new stickers. There's information. We just want to put that in your hands. So the ushers are going to come down the aisle, and you don't have to do anything elaborate. You don't have to stand up or announce yourself, but if you just get their attention, give them a little wave, they'll pass you one of these gifts. It'll get you a free you know, cup of coffee over at the well or whatever, so you can check that out too. But we just want to make sure everybody gets one of those. And if you're too shy to get an usher's attention because that makes you feel embarrassed, then you can grab one of these same gifts at the connect wall on your way out today. So this isn't your only opportunity. We just wanted to make sure you felt welcome and we're glad you're here. Okay, with that said, we're diving into Mark chapter 3, and we're going to basically be looking at the last two-thirds or so. Last week, we studied most of uh, Mark chapter 2, all of Mark chapter 2, and the beginning of Mark chapter 3. And just to refresh your memory or kind of get you on board for where we are here, what we saw last week was Jesus, through a series of different stories, showing people that he isn't going to easily fit into their old molds, that their old ideas are going to have to be renewed and refreshed. He compares what he is doing to the idea of trying to sew a new piece of cloth as a patch onto an old coat. And he says, what I'm doing will, it will rip and tear the old coat. In fact, what you need is a brand new jacket. Or he says, what I'm doing here is I usher in the kingdom of God and I show you what it means to be the Messiah. It's like new wine going into old wineskins. And the conflict and the dilemma that you're feeling is you're trying to cram me into your old way of doing things or your old way of seeing things. And I just won't fit there, right? I don't make sense in old wine skins because in the same way that new wine as it ferments would expand and if there were brittle old wine skins it would explode the wine skin and you'd lose the skin and the wine he says when it comes to me and the work of Jesus himself he says it, it isn't about pouring something new into something old it's about me doing a brand new thing right So last week, he says, there will be some uncomfortability as you figure out what this new thing looks like, and the key for you is to evaluate everything in terms of who I am, right? He tells the story also of the bridegroom, because the the people who are looking on, they're judging Jesus' disciples because they weren't fasting like other religious people were known to do. And Jesus says, well, they're interpreting and they're living out their lives based on my presence rather than what other people tell them is the appropriate thing to do. So they're not being driven by culture. They're not being driven by other people's expectations. Their lives are being calibrated according to my presence. When the bridegroom is with you, you don't fast, you party. That's what Jesus says, right? They are celebrating because of my presence. So Jesus has already given us a sense to say, your perspective might be off or you might be made uncomfortable because I don't fit very very well into your old models or your old frames, right? It's going to require something brand new. And to figure out what that new thing is, you have to pay very close attention to who Jesus is, he says, to who I am. Now, as we come to Mark chapter three in this last two thirds, there are three stories of different perspectives of Jesus. We'll look at each in turn. And they give us a very tangible example about how possible it is to be looking at the same things and seeing them in different ways. Does that make sense? To be looking at the same things. Jesus is doing what he's doing. He's preaching. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. There are people coming from all over. In fact, there are so many people coming to see Jesus, they don't even have time to eat a meal, it says in this section, right? 
And yet you can look at what Jesus is doing and you can see what he's about and you might read it different than somebody sitting next to you. Perspective is an interesting thing. Two people can look at the same movie or they can listen to the same song and feel completely different about it. I, I saw a hashtag online uh, a week or so ago that made me laugh. I kind of went down the rabbit hole for a minute. But the hashtag was bad movie synopses, right? Bad movie synopses. And this is where people have reviewed movies, but they've reviewed them in such a way that it makes the movie confusing. So I'll give you just a couple examples, two of my favorites. Um, one of them, the synopsis was, a group of heroes spend nine hours trying to return some jewelry. Now, that doesn't sound like a great movie, right? But what they were describing was the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? That is nine hours of people trying to return some jewelry. I mean, it's a funny way to look at it, but that is a description depending on your perspective. My favorite was this description, this synopsis. They said, uh, a young woman goes on a trip, and when she arrives at her destination, she kills the first person that she meets, and then she gets together with three strangers to kill again. And that's a description of the Wizard of Oz, Right? Travels to a new place, kills the first person she meets, gets together with some strangers to commit another murder, right? Oh, uh, yeah, okay, I mean, I see what they're saying. That might not be my perspective of the Wizard of Oz or your perspective of the Wizard of Oz, but it's a funny hashtag, and it was interesting to go down the rabbit hole and see that you can have people look at the same thing and see it completely different ways. Here in Mark chapter 3, we have three perspectives that are highlighted, and we want to look at each in turn. And the first is the perspective of the disciples who in this opening section we're studying today are called and appointed by Jesus. He calls them apostles for the first time and there are 12 of them. Let's read this section together and look, look at what's happening. It says in verse 13, Jesus went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. I don't wanna go too slow here today, but that sentence is packed with important things. So before we go any further, let's just talk about that sentence. What it tells us is that Jesus called the people that he chose, right? That it was prompted by his choosing that then he called them and then it tells us he called them and they came. That might all seem like a really mundane sentence and like it's a very little consequence, but actually what's described in that verse is really important. That for those of us who are following Jesus, we are following Jesus because he chose us. It was his decision, right? These aren't people who volunteered for this. They didn't sign up. They didn't fill out a form. Uh, Jesus chose them. It says he called those he desired. It has to do with God's choice. Interestingly, in John, uh, in John 15, 16, Jesus will reiterate this concept. In John 15, 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. It's interesting here that as Mark tells us the story of Jesus appointing his apostles, that he starts with Jesus's choice his sovereign decision, then Jesus' call, but that call is followed by obedience. All of those are significant, right? These 12 people become apostles, not just because Jesus chose them and not just because he called them, but because they obeyed him. Because their perspective of Jesus was such that when he chooses you and he calls you, you go to the place that he's called you to go. So he goes to this mountain, he chooses them, he calls them, and they come. Now, interestingly, it says in 14, he appointed the 12, and there is symbolism with the nation of Israel. We'll talk about that in a second, the tribes of Israel. It says he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, 
so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So he gives them a couple of things they're supposed to do, right? He gives them things they're supposed to do. They're supposed to preach. And in that, what we hear is that there's a ministry of proclamation or of declaration, that one of the things the apostles are appointed to do is to preach. And what that means then is that they are preaching the things that he himself was preaching, which we've already looked at, that the message of Jesus was about the availability of the kingdom of God, that what Jesus went about the countryside preaching was you could be living in the kingdom of God right now, right? It is at hand. So when he appoints them to preach, part of what they're preaching or exclusively what they're preaching are his words. Not only that, he appoints them to cast out demons, which is the very same work he's already been doing. So there is ministry for the apostles in proclamation. There's ministry for the apostles in action, the things that they're doing. But before he even gets to those two things, which are significant, before he ever gets to following him in word and deed, look at the first thing he appointed them to do. Actually, it precedes their words or their deeds. The first thing it says here is he called them apostles. He appointed them, what? So that they might be with him. I don't want you to get these out of sequence, and I don't want want you to miss the significance of this order. I think sometimes we start to think that all of the Christian life is about saying the things that Jesus said and doing the things that Jesus did. But before you and I will ever be capable of saying the things that Jesus said or doing the things that Jesus did, we have to be with him. The first thing he calls them to is presence with him, that he wants them to abide with him. He wants them to walk with him. It's interesting, uh, when you get to the book of Acts and Judas has already been a betrayer, right? He's already betrayed him. They're trying to fill Judas' spot. You know what they see as the most important qualification for a new disciple to be added to the 12? They say, let's pick somebody who was with Jesus, right? Who was with him. They don't say, let's pick somebody who preaches well. They don't say, hey, let's pick somebody who's really a dynamic exorcist and casts out demons like nobody's business. They say, no, if we're gonna pick an apostle, we wanna pick an apostle who walked with Jesus, who saw Jesus, who, who was with him. Because what they recognize that we sometimes fail to miss is that our words and our deeds come out of our commitment to be present with Jesus, to abide in him. Jesus says that in John 15 as well, right? He appoints these 12 and he calls them to be with him so that they can preach and so that they can act. But that all flows out of his presence. Now, it's not a very exciting list. He gives us a list of their names. He also gives a couple of them nicknames, which is cool. I sort of wish I knew his nicknames for the rest of them, but it doesn't tell us that. I sort of wish Jesus will give me a nickname someday. Don't guess what that will be. I don't want to hear your guesses. But it's an interesting list because it's not a very flashy list, right? This list of the 12 disciples begins with a denier, that's Peter, and it ends with a betrayer. That's Judas, right? So at the top and the bottom of this particular list are two people who failed in miserable fashion, right? And in between, nobody actually in the middle is that great either, right? They're all just regular people from different walks of life. A couple things I want you to see here is that he chose them. They didn't choose each other. They didn't get to pick who the other disciples were. They're not the ones who are deciding who's going to be part of that crew. He selected them and he chose them. What unites them and what brings them together as a group of 12 people, even though they're all very different and none of them are super fancy or spectacular to look at, the thing that unites them is that they were chosen by Jesus and that they were called by Jesus and they obeyed him, right? The same thing is true in the church. The thing that unites us, we come from different walks of lives. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but none of us in the room, present company included, are that spectacular, right? None of us are that fancy. We're not that big of a deal. 
But what unites us when we come together to sing and to pray and to study God's word, the thing that brings us all together is that we have been chosen by God and we've been called by God and we've obeyed that call. That's what, that's what makes us a group. That's what makes us a family. Our obedience, and we'll get to that in a second, but our obedience to the call of God to be here together. It's not that we make sense in any other fashion. The disciples themselves didn't make that much sense. I think sometimes as human beings, we like celebrity endorsements. You know what I mean? Like, don't you feel kind of good when like a big sports star or a movie star or whatever comes out and says they love Jesus? You're like, man, it's so great to have like a celebrity who affirms my faith or who affirms, you know, that the Bible is true or whatever. That always feels like something powerful just happened. But it's worth noting that Jesus could have chosen some celebrity endorsements here. He could have chosen some powerful people. He could have chosen some fancy people. He could have chosen some people who had a broader platform than these 12. But he desired these 12 and he called them and they came, right? We don't have to be fancy. We don't have to be celebrities. We don't have to be that big of a deal. We just have to be united by the fact that we've been called by God and we've obeyed that call. We're obedient to the call of God in our life. Now I said before that I would mention briefly something about the 12. Uh, The one thing I want you to note about the symbolism of the 12 tribes of Israel, um, there's a really great parallel obviously between 12 apostles and, uh, and the 12 tribes of Israel, that would have been immediately clear to anybody that was Jewish in the, in the audience when they were reading this or when Jesus announced that. The thing I want you to note that I think is significant when we're thinking about perspective or perceptions is that Jesus doesn't include himself as one of the 12. So what he doesn't do is pick 11 disciples to be apostles and then say, that's us, we're the 12 and we are representative and symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. He doesn't include himself in that number and you might be like, I don't know why that matters. It matters because for the Jewish people, when they thought about the 12 tribes, they did not think of God as a member of those tribes. They saw God as the leader of those tribes, right? That he was outside of the 12, that he was their father, that he called them all, but he wasn't part of that. So what Jesus is doing when he appoints 12, not 11, is he's saying, I'm not on the same ground as everybody else. I'm the master. I'm the Lord. I I am the Yahweh figure in this picture. Does that make sense? He's painting a picture of his disciples compared with the 12 tribes, and he paints himself above that because he's God, right? So when we talk about perception, when we talk about an understanding of why do these apostles even do what they do, they do it because when they looked at Jesus, they understood that he wasn't just a regular rabbi. They didn't know everything about him, and as we study this book, we'll see there are many places where they're confused about him or they don't get it right. But at a very base level, they understood that he had called them, that he had chosen them, and that he was different than anybody else they'd ever met. That's their perspective of Jesus, that he is worthy of their coming when he calls. Now the second perspective or the second perception that we see in this particular text is the perception and the perspective of his family. Let's look at this in verse 20. It says in verse 20, after he appointed the apostles, he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. There's so many people coming to him because of the casting out of demons and the healing of the sick. They can't even find time to have a meal. It says in 21, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now think about this for a second. We've just heard the perspective of these apostles who came when Jesus called. Now we hear about Jesus' mother and his sisters and his brothers. And they come, they hear that there are these crowds following Jesus and it says they come to seize him. The word that's translated seize him there is basically to take him by force. His family comes to take him by force and remove him from the crowds because they are looking at him and their perspective of him from a distance is he's crazy. 
He's out of his mind. Now, they might have had good intentions. So before you ascribe intentions to Jesus' family, be really careful. Because it's possible that they wanted to remove him because they were embarrassed for him or they were worried about him building shame. Remember, this is a shame culture. So he's certainly probably bringing some shame upon them and their family. There are a lot of people saying a lot of different things about Jesus, even in this chapter. So it might be that Jesus' family is going like, we gotta pull this guy out of the limelight because people are saying he's demon-possessed. People are saying he's uh, you know, a heretic. People are saying that he's all these different things. This isn't good for him. It's not good for us. It's possible that their motivation was, in their mind, Jesus' best interest. It's also entirely possible that their motivation was purely selfish. It's It's entirely possible that they go to grab Jesus and to take him out of the place that he is because they feel embarrassed about what's being said, because they feel off put by the situation it's putting them in, because of the uncomfortability of the way they view it. We know that his family knew some things about who he was, right? If you read the other gospels, you know that the angel came and told Mary that he would save the people from their sins, right? So she isn't totally ignorant. We know if we look at church history that some of Jesus' family become great church leaders later. So even in this moment where they're looking at Jesus and their perspective is he's out of his mind or he's a crazy person, we know that for some of them that's not a lasting perspective, it's a momentary perspective. There are some of his family that will pull out of that nosedive, right? But in this particular moment, they're trying to hinder his ministry because their perspective is he needs to stop doing what he's doing because he's not in his right mind. They were blinded by what was being said about him or how they were feeling, perhaps. Their opinions, the opinions of others, but their perspective of Jesus is off. Now, there's a note for us in this. You and I, we have to let our perceptions be shaped by Jesus and not how we feel, not what the culture is saying, not what other people are doing, right? Our perceptions of ourself, our perceptions of the world, our perceptions of our neighbors, our perceptions of Jesus himself need to be informed and defined by our view of Jesus, not our view of our own comfort or the way things make us feel or the way things have always been done, right? Our perception of Jesus has to be informed by Jesus himself. And the mistake that his family is making in this particular case is that they're reading his ministry through the lens of what they want or what they think or what they like rather than actually looking at him. We have to let our perceptions be shaped by Jesus and not the culture or our own comfort. And I want you to note too that as we look at this middle section and and this response by his family, this had to have been painful for Jesus. It had to have been painful for Jesus, right? This culture, this ancient, you know, this ancient culture was very family-centric, right? You worked in the same line of business as your father and your father's father and your father's father's father, right? The, The family connection is a big deal. So for Jesus to have his family come and say, knock it off, you're coming home with us because you're out of your mind, it would have been very painful for him. It is incredibly painful to have the people who should know you best, who should understand your motivations, who should understand who you are and what it is that makes you tick. It's very difficult and very painful to be rejected by people who misperceive you when they should be the ones who perceive you the best. Does that make sense? And it's possible that you sitting in the room this morning have experienced that kind of pain. Because you've set your sights on Jesus, because you're trying to follow Jesus faithfully, because you're trying to be a disciple who comes when Jesus calls, that other people looking at you from the outside who should know you better have rejected you. There may be some of you that because of following Jesus, you've been rejected by your friends or your family or people that you thought knew you, people that you thought understood who you were have walked away from you because of your commitment to Christ. And what I want you to say here, or what I want you to see in this text is that I'm, I'm positive that Jesus felt that pain. 
that it would have been disorienting and painful for Jesus to hear his mother and brothers and sister come and say, we think this guy's crazy because of all people, they should have known him, right? And they missed it. Sometimes in the followership of Jesus for us, we will lose friends because of our faith. But there's good news for you because if you're feeling lonely and if you're feeling isolated and if you're feeling misunderstood and if you're feeling like people have rejected you because you're just trying to keep your eyes on Jesus, the good news for you if you feel like you've sort of been cast out of your regular circle or your regular family is that in this very same chapter, Jesus redefines family. He redefines family. Now, we're going to jump down to the end of the chapter. Uh, This is another one of those I talked about last week. There's a Mark and Sandwich here, which means he starts this story about Jesus' family, and then he interrupts it with a story about the scribes, and then he comes back to the story about his family at the end. For our purpose this morning, we're going to jump to the conclusion of the story. So move with me, if you will, all the way down to verse 30, 31, excuse me. We'll come back to that center section, but in 31... It says Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, right? So again, there's a big crowd, bunch of people, they can't even have their meals, and his mother and brothers are standing outside going, Jesus, it's me, yeah, come, come on, let's, we're going home, like, let's go, get your stuff, we're getting out of here, like, you're, we're not doing this anymore, right? And the people standing around, they think Jesus can't hear them, and so a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to Jesus, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside, right, and they're seeking you. And here's Jesus' answer, verse 33. He answered them and he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Who are they? And the answer would have been, well, they're your biological family, like the mom who gave birth to you and the brothers that you were raised next to. You all learned how to ride donkeys together or whatever. That's a good, easy answer. Like your brother and brothers are these people, right? Jesus says, no, let me redefine that for you. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him. So again, he casts his glaze on the people who've done what? The people who've come to him. The people who've drawn near to him. He looks at the people who sat around him and he said, here are my mother, here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. It was radical and revolutionary, by the way, for him to include sisters in this particular quote. Like, that's just not a thing that would have been done. So for him to include his mother and his sisters and brother to make that non-gender specific was a really progressive thing for Jesus to do. But the most important point of what Jesus does here is he says the family of God is not a biological family. And the family of God is not a geographical family. It doesn't have to do with where you were born. It doesn't have to do with what color your skin is. It doesn't have to do with traditions, right? The family of God is not a family of traditions. If a family of God is not biological, it's not geographical, it's not institutional. The family of God is not organized according to like what club did you sign up for or what things can you agree to. The family of God, he says, is organized according to who is doing the will of God. And the next question you should ask as he redefines what the family is, 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 well, what then is the will of God? I'm glad you asked because Jesus answers that question. In John chapter 6, verse 28, when they ask him, in verse, uh, John 6, 28, it says, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What is that exactly? What do you mean when you say that? And Jesus answers in verse 29 of John chapter 6, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's not super complicated, right? We like to make it more complicated than that, but what Jesus is saying is, my mother and my brothers and my sisters, my family, are the ones who believe in me. They're the ones who believe in Jesus, whom God has sent. That's what it takes to do the work of God. He redefines family. Now, this is a message of hope, and this is a message of light for some of you who feel a little lost. If you feel lonely, if you feel like you've been set aside, if you feel misunderstood, if you feel like your family has abandoned you or whatever, 
if you're feeling isolated, God is saying to you through this, Jesus himself is saying to you, you still have a family. And actually, the family of God centered around belief in the son of God is actually prioritized in this text above your biological family. So there's a couple things for us to take away from that. I would say if you're feeling isolated or alone or if you're feeling abandoned or if you're feeling like there's nobody for you, the good news is if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got all kinds of family and that family, Jesus says, is more important than any other kind of family you can have. It takes precedence. The other thing I would want to say to you is that if you've made biological family or institutional family or if you've made traditional family, if you've made any of those things an idol, you also have to repent of that, right? Because if you've made biological family, and I only mention this because some people have done that, right? The church historically has done that. We've tried to make marriage the pinnacle of holiness. Like you're a good Christian if you find a wife and you have some kids. You're a good Christian if you're, if you're living this particular life. And for single people that attend this church, For people maybe who want to be married or have no interest in being married, you can sometimes feel like a second-class citizen, like your life will only start to count for something or you'll only have a place of significance in the body of Christ when you get a biological family. Jesus says that's idolatry. He says that's not true, that the most important family is the family of those who do the will of God, and the will of God is to believe in the one that the Father has sent, right? So here's what this is saying to you. You're not an outsider. Are you single? Are you divorced? You feel like your family has abandoned you? You feel like you've been, you've been left alone? You have family. Jesus says, here my mother and my sister and my brothers, it's the people who believe, right? But there is a danger to have a perspective that misses who Jesus is because we've prioritized the wrong things. And that sort of brings me then to the third example in this text. Jump back up with me, if you will, to this story about the scribes that starts in verse, let's see, I gotta go back to Mark. It starts in verse 22. It says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, by the way, what this means, because Jesus is not in Jerusalem at this time, is that the religious system has sent people from far away to contest what Jesus is doing and to call it devilry, right? To call it satanic. So these are scribes who've traveled a long way, emissaries from Jerusalem who've come. They've heard about what Jesus is doing and they've come to say, hey, you're excited about this Jesus, but we gotta tell you that what this Jesus is doing is of the devil. Here's how it happens. It says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Jesus called them to him and he said to them in parables. So just so you understand their accusation, these scribes, they are looking at Jesus and they're trying to figure out who he is. They're trying to figure out how he does what he's doing because he's not part of their system. He's not part of their religious organization, right? They are feeling the pull of the wineskins. He does not fit into their old wineskin. He does not make sense. He has not uh, accepted their traditional system. And so they're trying to make sense of it and they look at it and they go, he's either of God and we're not, or he's of the devil. And so they make this accusation of Jesus. They call him satanic. They call him Beelzebub. By the way, don't get too hung up on Beelzebub. Beelzebub was a, like a slain term for Baal that was used in the Old Testament. But you can see in this text that Jesus understands that they're basically saying he's an agent of Satan, empowered by Satan to cast out demons. And Jesus will refute the logic of that particular argument. But before we get there, let's just talk about what's happening with the scribes. For the scribes, he's a threat to them. He's a threat to their system. They were too busy looking at their religion to see Jesus for who he was. 
It's easy for us sometimes to call things we don't understand the work of the devil, right? It's easy for us to look at things we don't like or things that are a threat to us or things that make us uncomfortable and say, that's the devil at work, right? What I want you to see out of this text too, and this is a little bit of a side note, but if you're taking notes, it's important for you and I to have our understanding of spiritual warfare, our understanding of Satan, our understanding of demons, to have that understanding taught to us and informed by what the scriptures say, not what we see in popular culture, not what we see in Christian fiction, not what we see in secular fiction, right? So when you think about Satan or when you think about demons, if your picture goes to a scary movie you saw, you, you don't understand demons or Satan, right? If you're worried about things that are informed by popular culture and not by scripture, you, you don't have an understanding of how the spiritual realm actually works. And Jesus refutes their logic here. So they say, this Jesus, yeah, he's casting out demons and he's healing all these people, but he's doing it by the power of Satan. And Jesus goes, oh, hold on, like that doesn't even make sense, right? It doesn't make logical sense. So one thing Jesus is saying here too is that the work of Satan is logical. I don't wanna go down that rabbit hole with you, but if you think that the work of Satan is all just chaos and he's just haunting houses and like, what, like, no. Satan has a very strategic plan and it's logical and can be figured out if you think about it, right? Jesus says, this thing you've just said doesn't make any sense. That would be civil war. Why would Satan empower me to cast out Satan? Like logically, it doesn't make sense. You're saying that, that he has given me the power to go in and break down his kingdom? Like that's not even logical. At one time uh, when my kids were little, um, they'd already gone to bed and I hear this like blood curdling scream from upstairs. It was my son Hank and he was just a little guy and I run upstairs and he's sobbing and he's crying and he's so scared and, uh, and I was like, what, what happened? Did you get hurt? Like something bad happened to you? And he goes, no. He goes, I'm, I'm scared because Jack, that's his older brother, Jack told me that I'm gonna eat my own head. And I said, Hank, buddy, like let's just think about this for a second. Your mouth with which you do your eating is in your head, right? It it's not possible. Like, there's a lot of bad things that can happen, not that, right? I tried to use a logical argument. It didn't really work because he's like, well, Jack just said it, and I get it, so okay, whatever. Um, Jesus says to these people, you're, you're saying I'm doing these, these exorcisms? I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan? That would be a house divided. He goes one step further. First, he says your logic doesn't make any sense, and then he goes one step further. He goes, but for the record, if you're saying that the kingdom of Satan is being plundered, you're absolutely right, and the only way that happens, in order to plunder the strong man's house, there has to be a stronger man who goes in and ties up the strong man, and then he can set that man's captives free. Does that make sense? So Jesus says, I'm not an instrument of Satan. I'm not working for Satan, but I will tell you, I have taken him captive and I am stealing his prisoners. I am taking back the kingdom of God in the places where he has territory. So, the, so Satan is involved in that he is tied up and I'm, and I'm conquering him is what Jesus says. And then he finishes in that section with a warning. And this warning has been a, a source of a lot of fear and a lot of stress for Christians. So I'm gonna walk through it quickly as we finish up this morning. But Jesus says this at the end. He tells him that he has indeed bound the strong man and is taking the plunder from him. Then he says this in 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. 
Jesus gives this response and this warning because they were saying of Jesus, he has an unclean spirit. So we get the clarity there. Here's what's happened in Christian circles, and I know this because I've had conversations with some of you about this very thing. Sometimes when Christians read this passage and they hear Jesus talking about an unpardonable sin or a sin for which there is never forgiveness, they go, oh, what that means is that God has one particular sin he hates more than any others, right? This is the worst possible sin, and Jesus isn't even capable of redeeming it, right? If you do this thing, God is powerless to save you, you're stuck. Too bad, because that's God's most hated sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So better watch out. No, that's bad theology, right? There, there are, uh, sin has, has different temporal consequences, but the same eternal consequence. God doesn't have any sins that he hates the most, that's not what's being said here. It also is true that you don't have to be worried that you're gonna accidentally do this. So sometimes I have conversations with people and I'm like, wait, there's one sin you can do and if you do it, then you never get to go to heaven and you can't be forgiven and God just hates you forever and that's the end of the story, right? And people will freak out because they're like, I think maybe I accidentally blasphemed the Holy Spirit last Tuesday and so it's all over for me, like what do I do? Okay, look, what Jesus is saying is this and it's simple once I sort of lay it out for you. He's not saying God has one sin he's incapable of forgiving or that he refuses to forgive. He's also not talking about something you might accidentally do. What he's saying is to these scribes who have looked at Jesus and said, that is evil. What Jesus is saying is if you look at the light and you call it darkness, there's nowhere else for you to find light. If you look at what is good and you call it evil, then there is nowhere for you to find good right? Uh, N.T. Wright uses the illustration. He says, if the doctor who is offering you life-saving surgery seems to you to be a sadistic murderer, then you will not consent to have the procedure. Let me say that again. If a life-saving doctor seems to you to be a sadistic murderer, you will not consent to have the surgery. So here's the problem. These scribes are looking at the work of the Holy Spirit made manifest in the person of Jesus. And they're looking at him and rather than going, this forces us to recalibrate our whole faith. It forces us to recalibrate who we are. We gotta start over again. He's not just gonna be a patch on our old coat or new wine in an old wineskin. Rather than doing that, they look at Jesus who is the manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit and they say, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's Satan. If you look at what is good and you call it bad, if you look at what is light and you call it dark, there is no other hope for you. If you call the Savior who died for your sins and is the only way to find redemption, if you call him the devil, then there is no place else for you to find reconciliation with God. Reconciliation with God is found through the death and resurrection of Jesus and only through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Sometimes when people want to talk about the exclusivity of the claims of Christ, they'll say, oh, they turn to the place where he says, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And that's a good passage, but this is saying the same thing. There is one path to reconciliation with God, and if you see that one path as being an evil path, there is no path for you. So it's not talking about something you stumble into. It's not talking about something you do accidentally. What it's talking about is persistent rejection of the saving work of Christ characterized as evil, right? It's not a thing you do once. It's not a thing you do accidentally. Jesus himself will say in John 6, 37, everyone who comes to me, I will in no way cast out, right? My father will draw them, everyone who comes to me. So if you're here today and you're like, I think maybe... I committed the unpardonable sin and God's never gonna forgive me. The very fact that you're asking that question proves that you haven't done the thing he's talking about. Does that make sense? Because a person who's done the thing he's talking about is a person who doesn't care what God thinks about them because he thinks God is evil. See the difference?
Jesus says to the scribes, and it's not even finished for them, but he says to the scribes, God will forgive you everything, but if you persist in that particular blasphemy, that particular blasphemy will lead you nowhere but eternal separation. If you look at what is good and you call it bad, if you look at the work of the Holy Spirit and you call it the work of the devil, there is no place for you to turn for hope. As I finish this morning, the question for us is what is your perspective of Jesus? Right? We see these three perspectives. We see the perspective of his family who should know better, but because of their own questions, their own concerns, what's happening in the culture or whatever, they look at Jesus and they go, we think maybe he's out of his mind. There are these scribes who come all the way from Jerusalem and they look at Jesus as he's healing people and casting out demons and they say, we think that's the work of the devil. And then there are these disciples who see Jesus and they hear his voice and they go to him. My encouragement for you is to take a look at who you think Jesus is. You might be somebody in the room who goes, well, I think Jesus was a good man. He gave some great speeches. He helped some people, you know, and the, uh, by and large, he was, he's a good dude, right? But I'm not sure that he's God. Well, listen, he himself said he was. So if he's not God, then you at the very least have to say he was crazy or you have to say he's evil. It's the very same perceptions that we see in the text here. He either is who he says he is and he's worth following when he calls you or he's crazy or he's evil, but he he can't be all three of those, right? So what we see in the text is Jesus saying, I wanna do something new in you. Will you allow your life and your faith and your perceptions to be framed by who I am rather than your own comfort or what other people have said or even your perceptions of me that may be wrong? Let me recalibrate your view of all things. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray for any in the room who maybe have never put their faith in you, that if there's a man or a woman sitting in the room today who maybe thinks you're a good guy and we're a good teacher and did some nice things, but has never trusted in you as the savior of the world who died in our place, shed his blood, rose from the dead and extends resurrection life by his grace, that you would choose them today, that you would call them and that they would come to you, that they, would, that they would surrender their life to you and enter the kingdom of God. I pray for those in the room who maybe sometimes are tempted to, to look at Jesus and think he's crazy or maybe those in the room who feel hurt because other people have looked at them and say maybe he's crazy or she's crazy. Will you help us to find peace in the way you define family and to recognize that there is a more important family than the biological one or the institutional one that the most important family is the family of those who are gathered around at your feet believing what you have said. And for those in the room who may look at light and call it darkness or may look at good and call it evil, will you wake them from that misperception? Will you lift up their eyes to see the truth of who you are? And will you help them to confess of that, of that misunderstanding and to be transformed by your grace? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.